I guess that's the privilege of like being a white man in design is that you can just say that you're good at something. You don't actually have to be good at it. Hello and welcome to Overshare, a podcast where we have honest conversations with creative people we admire about the struggles that often come along with being a creative professional. In a world of carefully curated portfolio sites and Instagram feeds, we try to get past those highlights and discuss the tough stuff we don't talk about in public often enough. In this episode, you'll learn that it's okay to be messy, not in the organization sense, but messy in the decisions and mistakes you make. That none of us are unique or special in our struggles, and once you embrace who you are and feel comfortable with your voice, it will transform your work. I'm your host, Justin Genak, and I'm also the co-founder of Working Not Working, a curated community that connects companies with the universe's most respected, most awarded, and hardest working creatives in advertising, design, production, and tech. This is the part where I ask you to take a minute to rate and review Overshare to help other people discover us. Also, subscribe to get the latest episodes and they're released every two weeks. Today's episode is my in-studio conversation with Robin Kenner. Robin is a writer, designer, and co-founder of MyTrans Health. She's written for places like The Atlantic, Mel, and Them, and worked as a product designer at Amazon and Etsy. Robin and I had a deeply personal conversation on a range of topics, from her love and appreciation of Kanye West to her self-described messy career path. I was really impressed with Robin's honesty and how she embraces and actually strives to be uncomfortable, using that as fuel for her writing and design. I was also touched by a feeling that may be relatable to a lot of us, the feeling of not fitting in and wanting to be invisible, and how difficult it can be once your work, your story, and your voice starts to be noticed. I've included a ton of links in the show notes from our conversation, including Robin's poignant article in The Atlantic about detransitioning and her talk titled, Has Your Misery Ever Been a Sight to See?, where she shares about her role as a designer who's trans and what happened when her story caught on with the press. There's a lot of sincerity and beautiful insights in this episode, so please enjoy my conversation with Robin Kanner. So I'm going to start with some some really easy warm-up questions. Ready. Uh, favorite curse word? Uh, fuck. Okay, that's a good one. Uh, favorite NBA player? <laughs> Jordan. Okay, current? Current favorite NBA player? Uh, I would say, ooh, that's a really good question. Um... I love LeBron for the politics. I love DeMar DeRozan for gracefully handling oh. his trade, which I imagine was hard. Yeah. Uh, and I love Gordon Hayward. Yeah. Well, yeah. Hope he gets back. Yeah, yeah. Uh, how about your favorite NBA team? Bulls. Okay. Ride or die. Ride or die. Um, if there's one NBA team's branding that you could redesign, who would it be? Oh, uh, good question. I would probably do... I do the Utah Jazz. That's mine too. Specifically because it's like it's the Mormon culture, and I would love to have a, a voice in Mormon culture. <laughs> that would be kind of amazing. I also they can we just get rid of the Jazz? It's they shouldn't be called the Utah Jazz. Yeah, no right. Yeah, yeah. There's no Jazz players in Utah. No. Yeah. Uh, well, maybe one. There's probably one guy. Sure. Yeah. Uh, just representing. Yeah, they're riding it pretty high though. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Did you, I do love the gradient uniforms though? Mmm, those are good. The orange, yeah, yeah, yeah. The red, those are yeah. kind of beautiful. Yeah, I feel like Utah's it's a. It's a weird team. Like, I really like Donovan Mitchell, but I hate their draft pick, uh, whatever that kid's name is. Um, I don't remember who they got. Oh. The Duke guy. Yeah, the punk kid. Yeah, him, Grayson Allen. Yeah, um, nobody likes him. So I feel like, I don't know, I'm kind of looking forward to watching him get beat up in his first year of the NBA. Because yeah. I just watched him trip people for four years in college basketball. Yeah, it's going to come back to him. Yeah. We, I, we need villains, though, to make the make exactly. the exciting. Yeah, true, true. Uh, do you miss the old Kanye? Uh, I appreciate the old Kanye. I didn't get into Kanye until 
uh, right after a beautiful dark twisted fantasy. Uh-huh. So I didn't really consume college dropout and uh, graduation and late registration like a lot of people did. I, yeah. I didn't really just listen to it. Um, it was when I heard 808s and I heard beautiful dark twisted fantasy. Like that's what I knew of Kanye. Mm-hmm. And that Kanye was, it was different. Like he didn't make radio. Like yeah. none of those records were radio. Uh, so I feel like I'm in this place where I am able to really enjoy all of the new Kanye uh-huh. because I caught him at 808s. Like, yeah. You know, yeah. Well, I, and I know you, we've talked about Kanye a lot before and I know you're a big yeah. Kanye fan. Huge. Yeah. Um, yeah. I feel like I, I was trying to think last night. I was, so I was listening to college dropout yeah. on vinyl. Mm. Uh, Cause I just got a record player. Yeah. I moved to Brooklyn. And I'm having a midlife crisis. Um, <laughs> and so I was like, all right, I'm going to listen to this. It's one of the first album I bought yeah. on vinyl. Yeah. Uh, so I was listening to that while I was doing that. And I was like, Oh, what is my favorite Kanye album? I think it's my beautiful dark twisted fantasy. Yeah. And late, late registration has so many good hits. It has good. Yeah. I go back and forth on this a lot on my favorite Kanye album. Um, when I last sat down, I decided that Yeezus was my favorite Kanye album. Uh-huh. Um, beautiful dark twisted fantasy with two and eight weights is three and the move for that was very intentional um because i feel like like my beautiful dark twisted fantasy is a perfect record but it's also a record written for us Mm -hmm. and yeezus is a record written for him and there is something in that selfish quality that i absolutely admire that people would be around him and being like what are you doing this sounds what are you what are you doing just yeah beautiful dark twisted fantasy did exactly what you wanted just make another one yeah and he just totally pushed it he was like no i'm making yeezus and what else is it about that like draws you to Kanye so much? Uh, I just because a lot of people hate Kanye, and I'm I, always yeah. a, I'm always a defender of Kanye. Right. Well, I am too. Um, I love that he's unapologetically Kanye. I love that he consistently makes mistakes and consistently calls out the mistakes that he's made. Mm-hmm. Um, I love that he's messy. Uh, I love that he just has shifted culture over and over and over again. Like, because I'm a huge Eminem fan too, but if I look back on his records, like Eminem for the most part, I said one sort of story throughout his trajectory. And yeah. And I think that's what he's running into now, like with his album Revival. Like he doesn't, the material is there. It's good. Like it, yeah. the album is great, but there's also like a lack of story and a lack of, lack of depth. Well, it's like what's going on with him now. Right, yeah. exactly. And uh, when I hear Kanye, I always feel like I, I experience a new part of a human being. And I absolutely love that. Yeah, it's a great way to look at it. Yeah. That's cool. Uh, now we're going back. Uh, where are you from originally? I know you, you brought up Maine. Yeah, so I was born in Columbus, Ohio, and okay. at age two, I, I moved to this little town called Fairfield, Maine. Okay, and then in, in, in small small place, <laughs> one stoplight. I always call it a pocket-sized town. Uh, it's <laughs> it's one stoplight. Um, I moved around a lot when I got into Maine initially. Uh, I I know I landed at one point. There was this town over called Waterville. And I think we lived in an apartment complex there. And then we moved to Fairfield and what was called the greenhouse because it was green. It's now since been torn down and condemned because there was like mercury poisoning and stuff. Oh, perfect. But uh, I moved from the greenhouse and I moved to this place called the White House, which obviously wasn't the White House, but it was another apartment complex in Fairfield, Maine. And then from that place, we moved into a trailer in Clinton, Maine. And we were in the trailer for like, I think, three years. Um, and then when we were in the trailer, that's when my dad got uh, sort of, he had been diagnosed with MS while we were in the White House, but it was clear that signs were showing when he was in the trailer. And uh, my mom was very petrified that we would be an hour removed from like a, a store basically yeah. and he'd be sick. So uh, we moved back into Fairfield at um, the house that I really grew up in, which is like this like sort of like light green, cute little house in, in Fairfield, yeah. Maine. And, and from what age did you, were you living from there? And- 
Uh, I was probably in that house from 13 on to 17, 18. I left home when I was like 18. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Where'd you go? Uh, I was messy. Like, I feel like I've told the story a lot of times. And when I do it, I give people pieces of it because I know it's like my trajectory was so not straightforward. Um, so when I, I, I accidentally graduated high school early. And it was only because I got kicked out of a class and my credits aligned in a way that worked for me. So I had this like six month period where I was, um, I like graduated in the winter of 2004. So that, that semester that I should have been in high school, I worked at a Wendy's um, late night like as a real person and I taught myself design and I took like a, a history college course. How'd you, how'd you teach yourself design? I just had a computer and I opened up Photoshop and I started to imitate the album covers that I liked. There was a, so there was a designer in Portland, Maine. His name is Walter Craven. Um, yeah. He's a fantastic musician too. But I looked at Walter's work all the time. i totally obsessed with him. And uh, we later would become friends and tour with each other, which is kind of funny. But oh, that's cool. he was the guy that I, I really looked up to. And he just made textures and he used scans in a really interesting way. He's color interesting. Uh, and he always was very good at removing what it is he was doing while telling you what it, what it is what he's doing. Like, he kind of just hit it a little bit. Yeah. Um, so I was in, in that area, I was designing, and then I went up to a college uh, called New England School of Communications in Bangor, Maine. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's way up there, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's way up. It's, uh, it's probably, like, if you're at the, the, the southern, southern part of Maine, if you drove for five hours north, you'd hit Bangor. Yeah. And um, it's cold as shit. Yeah, it's cold as shit. I lasted a semester there, um, and then I, I just didn't like it. That is not my tea. Mm-hmm. And so I went to a school called University of Maine at Farmington, and that was in Western Maine. Okay. Yeah. And then you graduated from there? Uh, kind of. So <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I love this already. Yeah, it was, it was messy. So I stayed in yeah. Farmington, Maine for two years, uh, and then I did a national student exchange, and I wound up in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Um, so I was you know in, that's not international, right? Well, yeah, it was like a national, whatever. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> internationally. For me, it, like that Basically. place, that was really far away, right? Yeah. Uh, so I was in Minneapolis for six months, and I uh, took art classes and really found a voice and sort of the whole thing. And then I went back to Farmington where uh, I finished school. Um, but actually, I never actually got a diploma. Like, I don't actually have a diploma because I, I, there's two classes that I just didn't take. Yeah. Uh, it's a, they're all general ed education. It was yeah. like a... Nobody needs that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I was really dead set on making sure that I could figure out my life without it. Like, I, I just really wanted to prove them wrong, that I didn't need it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I still don't have it. So a little chip on your shoulder because of that. Yeah, I had, like, it was it's a pretty long chip on my shoulder to make sure that I could pull it off yeah. without having to do all that stuff. And then how did you go from uh, bouncing around Maine and Minneapolis to getting into you know, the creative industry and design world. Yeah. So I was in, I, I basically after college, I moved to Portland, Maine and I worked, um, Great town. yeah, I was just honestly like Portland was my urban. It was my, I consider Portland, Maine very much my home. Um, cause it was really where I learned how to be a person. But when I got into Portland, I worked as an intern at, uh, this theater called Portland stage company. And I like literally was like a marketing designer. So I built, um, creative that was already made i just sort of reformatted like the composition for advertisements right uh and then i also like worked lights on a show and i like helped make it snow during christmas carol (laughs) 
And while I was doing that, I was making a lot of album covers. Like I was designing a lot of records. And were they were those just for fun and emulating ones, or were those for actual? No, these were yeah. Band? At that point, I was actually doing it. Like I oh, made it like great. enough body of work. Um, yeah, so I ended up designing like fifty records in like a three year span, That's basically. Great. Um, and this guy who was James Brown's last manager had moved to Maine, and he started uh, like a magazine. So I, I, he scooped me up because I was like known as like a local person in music, yeah. and I designed that uh, magazine for a couple years. And after that, I just sort of I worked in an agency for two months, and uh, then I worked at a nonprofit in education. And while I was at that nonprofit, uh, I transitioned, and that's when like it just. I feel like design at that point, especially like design Twitter, like Twitter design, right? Mm -hmm. Didn't have like a trans person making stuff and like making stuff loudly. Uh -huh. And I wedged my way into that world very quickly. Yeah. Uh, from So from there, I moved into to Boston. That's how I got like a more creative world. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I read you got a... Uh you got a job at, what was it, Staples? Yeah, I got a job at Staples. Um, I lied my way into a contract job love, at Staples. I love that. Uh, I was living in Maine, and nobody really would give me a job because I looked trans, and they didn't have language for it. So I kept like actively getting turned away for that. Mm -hmm. um, so I emailed this guy, Mike Montero, who I now yeah. do a podcast with. and uh, That's great. Mike was just like, you got to get out. He was very sweet, and like, he was just like, look, I hear you. I don't know what your situation is, but it's time to go. Um, to so, get out of Portland. Yeah. Yeah. So I got the job as like a contractor at Staples and um, bought a car, drove it illegally to like the job every day. And was it not registered? Uh, it was. So it was registered, but it wasn't insured. And um, eventually the registration did run out. And also, like, it just didn't really work that well. Like, it would never pass inspection. Uh, the brakes were horrible. Like, I used to have to actually, I would wake up at like 4 35 in the morning. And I would drive to work before rush hour started. So I'd always be in the office at like basically like 6, 6.30 every morning. And I did it just because I wanted to make sure I could get the car there and back yeah. without like any sort of bad thing happening. Um, and then I would, I would drive late at night. So I basically was at Staples from like 6 in the morning to like 9 p.m. at night just so I would avoid rush hour traffic because the car was that bad. Wow. Yeah. Well, I like though the, like the, the need to like hustle and just get it done yeah. and just like fuck it. You know, <laughs> at that point, I was very much just like, "This is gonna work or it's not." But I'm gonna find out, like right now. Well, and and you were, you said you were having getting turned away for jobs, so it was yeah. hard to find jobs being trans. Or? Yeah, I mean, at the t it's a little bit better now in design because I feel like the just the culture is a little bit better. But at the time, especially where I was, I just didn't look like the like I didn't look like a designer that you wanted to hang out with, and I'm not sure I still do. Like I think I think you do. I don't know. I think I, I do really well in freelance rooms. I do well in media rooms. But whenever I'm in a house, I feel like there's almost this layer of just like, I, I just don't fit the culture 110% is sort of what I run into as a problem. Um, so I, there's a lot of times I just I don't fit the culture of, of doing that, mm -hmm. which is, gets me in trouble all the time. Yeah, but it's it's not that fun to fit in. <laughs> yeah, well, it it makes life easier. It would yeah, make life make dramatically life. easier for me yeah. if I did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I could, I could, I I can't relate to that at all, actually. Yeah, I, uh, are you sure? I well, about not fitting in. I mean, you yeah, also been run you been run times. a company too, right? So yeah. you, you have a little bit like. You set culture for the most part. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it's like, and I spent years freelancing. I, I, right. I spent. 
uh, like seven years. But I guess if we go back to like when I was a kid, sure. fitting in. Yeah. Right. It yeah, all yeah. goes back to when we were kids, right? True. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, but it, like that was part of my. Uh, well, we'll get into more of that later. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let's see what else we got here. Uh, so, all right. So you, you started working at Staples. Yeah. And uh, you worked there, contract. And then where'd you go after that? So the car died. <laughs> I needed a different the job. Died the that, that was the, the big, like the, the big reason why I left Staples. My car died, and I, I was basically bumming a ride to work every day. Yeah. And I got a job at New Balance as another contract design position, and that was a bike ride away from me. It was a two mile bike ride. So. So you're making uh, job choices based on you know, how accessible it was. Yeah, hundred yeah, percent. Yeah. Um, so I took the New Balance job, and it was amazing. Like at Staples, I was a brand designer. Uh, I built like a lot of packaging stuff. At mm-hmm. New Balance, I built like pop up shops, like for like half marathons and stuff. But the team was incredible at Staples, and the team was incredible at New Balance. And while I was at New Balance, uh, the the idea for my transal happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and I uh, I was at there while I did the Kickstarter too. So that was sort of when everything sort of turned upside down for me. Yeah. So so how did that start, my trans health? Yeah. So uh, Cade Clark. Um, is this uh, person who lived in New York and is now moving back up here? But he had this concept for like a to make healthcare better for trans people, but he didn't have it entirely fleshed out. Um, and me and a couple of the people sort of came in and really concepted what an experience would be like. And uh, after like a bunch of research, we basically decided the hardest part was finding culturally competent access. Hmm. Um, so being able to ask questions and like not be weird about gender. Uh, so the site that we ended up built basically ask you two to three questions about what you need and it, it spits you out a provider that we've actually called on the phone and talked to about gender before. Really? So, yeah. So, so you, you guys are going like door to door and finding healthcare providers. Yeah, exactly. Understand yeah. the needs of the trans community. Exactly. So um, is that harder to find than you would expect? It is. I mean, it's also shifting. Like it's great in New York and San Francisco, but right. when we started to branch out in rural areas, like you set different terms, right? Like something that like maybe doesn't fly in New York flies in Omaha. <laughs> just right. like, I'm, we're going to make this work because this is going to get you what you need in your, in your... Right, and the options are limited, so... You, yeah, you make different, yeah, different yeah. investments, yeah. And then how long did you guys work on that before you, before you launched it? Uh, about a year, a little over okay. a year. Um, we built it hard. Like, I, it was the big, it was the first big piece of tech that I ever worked on and created, and uh, I didn't understand while I was making it how to build things to scale. Hmm. And uh, I recently redesigned it. It's not out yet, but it will be out soon. And we just built the whole thing to scale and run like much more efficiently. But right. the first time, it was just like, let's get this out and yeah. just try to put it out. Well, and you're building something for yourself and for your friends. And, right. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. kind of what we did too. It yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. You build the thing to solve your own needs, and then you're like, oh, shit, there's a lot more people out right. there. Yeah. we got to figure out how to make this manageable for ourselves. Totally. So, yeah. yeah. And I kind of, in hindsight, I really loved that time because I was – just so incredibly naive and headstrong about everything. Now I think through things a lot more. And um, I've, I had experience at Amazon and like bigger tech companies, and I've seen like the, the value of scaling your product stronger. Uh, so when I approach a lot of design stuff now, I'm less naive about that because it's almost sort of like a system that runs. I'm like, well, this is MVP, and this is V1, this is V2, this is what would happen in the middle. Of... So it, it runs like a well-oiled machine for me. So I kind of almost missed the naive moment where I was just like, yeah, just forcing it out. Well, I'm sure there's probably other aspects of your life where you can be naive again. Totally, and, sure. And you're learning yeah, yeah. new things, but yeah. I think yeah, building something with the intention that it's going to change. Right. And it's not something I think a lot of times in design, if you're going from a traditional like you know, print design or product design right. in the non-digital sense, 
you're not you 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 do it once and you and you obsess over the details right and you get in in which spot gloss and right. everything else yeah, but yeah. then when you're building a, a you know a website and a digital experience it's sure. a totally it, yeah. you have to reprogram yourself yeah it's a total shift of mind yeah 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 and then w when you launch my trans health yeah. you launch it with a kickstarter uh-huh uh, and it, it got a little bit of traction. Yeah, it got some traction. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was uh, still. So we launched the Kickstarter before we had a product. Um, like we had the concept of what the product would be at the point of the Kickstarter, but we didn't have any tech built. So you knew that you identified the problem that needed to be solved. Yes. Yeah. We sold the problem. Yeah. Um, and we sold like a solution for the problem too, but we really sold the problem. And we so we raised about I think like thirty three thousand dollars. And. What was the goal? Uh, 20. Okay, great. Yeah, we shot low with the expectation that we'd hit more. Because in our minds, from a press standpoint, if, a, if an outlet could write that trans healthcare um, product met their Kickstarter goal within two days, that would have a much stronger buzz to it. Yeah, that's smart. Yeah, so uh, we launched, and uh, the press was unreal. It was the first time that I sort of experienced that. Uh, I went on to give a whole talk about this, but um, basically... The talk's premise is, has your misery ever been a sight to see? And it's this idea. A really powerful talk. Yeah. yeah it's, this, uh, it's this idea that, for me, like, I mean, at that point in life, being trans is like, you can't get a job, right? You can't be loved. Like, there's all these things that you can't do. Hmm. And then I made that, and it sort of popped off in a way that, you know, Good Magazine and, you know, uh, Business Insider and BuzzFeed and TechCrunch and The Verge are all saying, like, this is a great thing. Yeah. And I was like, what the I don't know if I can swear, but yeah, it was yeah, we can great. So I was like, what the fuck? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was just like this moment where I was just like, y'all think this is good? Because I died for years. I've been told it's a bad thing. Yeah, that's got to be that's got to be a bit of a shock. Yeah, I had to go to therapy like immediately. <laughs> yeah, like how do you how do you even process that? Uh, therapist. Yeah, I, I spent a lot of time in therapy. Um, spent a lot of time mad too. Like I spent a lot of time in isolation, being mad and. Well, did it feel like you were giving your story away to other people now? Oh, yeah, yeah. It felt like I was giving the story away for free, too. Like, I, I didn't know what, like, to, to the outlets, like, there was a time where I was just kind of like, this is mine. Like, I was like, what the heck? Uh, so I felt like I wasn't getting a ton back at it. But I, but it, it was asking a lot. And people were very um, sort of, like, frothy with how they'd ask questions, right? Because hmm. I'd basically be talking about, like, a suicidal experience. And the journalist would be like, Great, what happened next? And I'd be like, Jesus. I lived. <laughs> that's, that's what happened next. Yeah. Uh, so to talk about something so like deeply drastic to me and such passive language in an interview, I was just kind of like, I don't know how to do this. Yeah. Uh, so and, that took a while. Yeah, and how do you yeah, even how to navigate that? Yeah, it just takes a while to figure out, like, and to be comfortable with. And how especially if it's something you maybe weren't comfortable for a long time and suddenly right. your people are coming to you for it. Right, totally. Yeah. It's it's weird. I, what I learned is that when you're telling a story, you don't have to tell everybody everything. Like there's mm -hmm. there's parts to that specific story that I own, and yeah. and nobody has them. Like uh, and whether that's like um, what time of day it was, what clothes I was wearing, what the weather was. Like there are parts of that story that nobody knows in their mind, and you and you can't have them. Yeah. Um, and because of that, I that sort of approach is how I got comfortable with telling stories. Yeah, and you're not obligated to share it either. Right, yeah, and I, and I hold that line. I'm just like, mm -hmm. you don't get to know the color of the sweater I was wearing that day. Yeah. Um, and it feels good. Yeah, yeah. to have that stuff. Uh, and then what, at what point did you realize that you had a platform? <laughs> um, uh, I, had a, I realized it because um, Mike Montero, who kept poking me about it before, long before I 
decided or yeah. knew that this was and happening. People don't know Mike Mantero. Yeah, he's, he's a poker. He's a poker. Um, he's a brilliant man, and uh, he kept poking me. He was like, "Hey, you realize you have a platform?" And this is like, you know, a few thousand people following me on Twitter. I'm like, "And what year was this?" 2014, 15 yeah. was when, yeah, 2015, I wrote this article about Caitlyn Jenner, uh, basically calling her out. And Mike was like, at that point, he was like, you should know you have a voice. Mm-hmm. Like, you need to act like you have a voice. Yeah. Um, so that was when I sort of understood that, like, oh, people listen to me talk about words. Well, and I feel like up until that point, and even for myself, you almost need someone to give you permission. Right. Which we shouldn't need that. Sure. Yeah. But you almost take, you know, someone that you trust to say, actually, no, I want to hear what you have to say and right. others will benefit from it too. Yeah. And it, it, it was hard for me because I just wanted to be invincible, like invincible or invisible. That's what I'm looking yeah, for. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to be invisible because uh, being trans, like I was so in the, never in the quote unquote public eye, but like if I'd walk through a cafe, like people knew that there was a trans person there. Right. Mm-hmm. So I really wanted to be, quiet and kept low and I couldn't do it like I sort of had to I had to really navigate and I'm still having a hard time with this on what I let people in on me and what I don't because there's been times where I've walked into like a work situation or an actual relationship or a friendship or whatever it is like and uh, I've given them all of me and then I felt entirely weak and powerless or mm. I felt like they could really use me against me or whatever. And then there's times that I've sort of kept parts of my life buried. Like you get this part cause we're here and we do this thing and I get this thing and you don't get this thing. But that always makes people mad cause they would just wish they had the whole me. Right. Or they feel there's a wall or a distance. Exactly. There. Yeah. And then it's, it's always been hard for me to communicate. I'm just like, it's not you. I just need to protect me because there's been times that like, this has really hurt me. Yeah. Well, and boundaries are, I think that's something I've I've learned more recently how right. important that is because I think sure. it's easy to dive into it. I heard uh, or I read a quote um, that love I heard it uh, love is giving people the power to destroy you and trusting they won't use it. That is the dumbest thing ever. <laughs> like I I think I could never. Yeah. Like that that is to me the 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 wildest idea. And but in in reality, when you go yeah. and actually put yourself fully out there, it's like, right. oh yeah, it's all there. Right. Yeah. And it's yeah, it's scary. It's petrifying. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I feel like I had to create a wall of what people got from me and what people didn't to to just keep my sanity. And the idea of putting down that wall for specific things just no, it's <laughs> <laughs> like goes against everything that I've I've ever learned. Yeah. Well, and it seems like by, by following you, uh, you know, online on on Twitter right. and on Instagram, it seems like you do share a lot. Totally. Um, and does it, do you feel a pressure now because maybe people expect that of you or you, you've built an audience around being very vulnerable and very real and do you feel pressure to keep that up? Um, I don't feel pressure to keep it up. I feel like the, I create little avenues for it to work for me, um, like I do this thing late at night on Twitter called night Twitter, right? Mm -hmm. And 10, 11 PM, I, there's no this is not cute. This is not branded. What, what, what it is, is like, I say, Hey, it's time for me to night tweet. And I send <laughs> 10 tweets of just like, this is what I'm feeling. Like, just like, I am feeling this. I'm feeling this emotion. I'm feeling this. I'm mad about this, whatever it is. And, um, I do it in a way, like a pop song talks about emotion. Like I pull it back enough layers that it still gets what I want out of it to say that I was mad about this or happy about this, whatever it is. But it's so far removed from the actual thing that somebody else can touch it. Hmm. And I leave it up for 20 minutes, 10 minutes, and then I delete it. So, oh, wow. 
basically you wake up in the morning and you just see nine Twitter and you don't you never see the 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 whole thread that was going on with it. And creating little avenues like that gives me space to feel like it's not a performance. Like it just feels like this is how I've used the internet for my entire life and this is how I'm gonna continue to use it. And once it's gone, it's gone. That's that's, that's such an interesting way to look at because I think we have this mindset that the internet's forever. Right. Which in some senses it is. And sure. maybe now like, you know, all I do is Instagram stories now. I don't even totally. post my feed. Like sure. I, I almost I, I don't know what to post on my feed anymore. Yeah, I feel like that's a that's a problem that they gotta figure out soon. Yeah. yeah. And uh and so I think to be able to have things be temporary right. and, and it, there's so much less risk. So maybe you're sure. more willing to be real or vulnerable or sincere. Right. And uh, Yeah, and I'm able to just get it out. And I also feel like, I mean, my problems really aren't that unique, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you pull a few layers back and pretty much anybody relates to them. So I, I really like to be able to do that. That's a, that's a nice realization to have. Yeah, it's a huge. I mean, I got it all from working in music. Oh, really? 110%. Oh, I watched, I had this... Uh, friend his name is Dan Capaldi he's a brilliant musician and we worked on an EP together he had he put out an EP um years and years ago and I watched him write about the previous band that he was in breakup uh specific moments of the breakup that he pulled back like 10 different layers to get a really nice line in and I was just like wow this guy's writing I mean he's writing a breakup album with this old band but he's really finding a way to let other people into the breakup yeah. um, while keeping his own. And so I learned off of music, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I think it's easy when you're going through stuff right. to think you're the only person that's ever gone through it. Totally, totally. And to feel special in your pain and special right. and, and your grief. And as soon as you start to share that with other people right. and you realize you're not, right. it's, so, it's so much easier to go through. And I feel like I found that in the past few years. Like... I spent 36 years not having feelings. Right, right. Um, and was really good at ignoring all of sure. them. And yeah, then all of a sudden, the past three years, I have them. And I'm like, oh, shit. This here they like, are. Here they are. Yeah. And yeah. I'm gonna, and then and then it's almost like a new toy. And sure. It's like, like oh, I, yeah. I wouldn't have done this podcast of course. three yeah, years yeah. ago because right. I wouldn't have had... The, walls. The, yeah, I would have had walls. Yeah. I wouldn't have had the, the, the language and sure. the vocabulary to be able to talk about it. Right. But then I realized once I started talking about stuff, right. like people that were casual acquaintances became really close friends. Totally. Because instead of just having really surface interactions sure. about like, oh, funny joke, funny joke, yeah, great. Yeah. Oh, yeah, killing it, killing it. Right. It's like, oh, actually, no, I'm really struggling right killing now. Killing it, killing it, yeah. killing it. Killing it, killing it, killing it. Nothing's like, wrong. Fuck the, that shit. The funny thing is when you're killing it, that's the, the time that's usually hardest. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's sort of how it goes. I remember I had a friend, uh, Kevin Kinney, played in this band called Head Start, and they they were like a pop punk band. Like they wrote sort of cute, quirky songs Mm -hmm. and they put out this record called Our House uh, and that record just destroyed me in pieces and there's this line in it. The the first, the album is basically about um, his father leaving and dealing with his growing up and uh, having a really difficult time processing being a teen with like bad family and Mm -hmm. home stuff and he has this line and this, the opening song, Welcome Matt, that says, um, don't take your shoes off at the door. See, we don't live this way. And it's so perfectly encapsulated what his hope was like. Yeah. And without giving you anything. Like, there's no, but like. It's such a nuance. It's such yeah. a nuanced way of saying that you do not have to take your shoes off when you come into this home because this is not that type of place. Yeah. Like, that tells you everything about my upbringing. Mm-hmm. And when you figure out how to, to write lines like that, um, that's when sharing a story becomes so fun because you get to keep the moment right mm. but another person gets to have a piece of it and i really like that that's cool yeah i feel like 
I, I want to learn from that. Yeah, because it's I, hard. Because I, I don't feel like I'm a very good writer. Yeah. Um, all my sentences are the exact same length. Right. Um, and I feel like I used to be a better writer, just maybe I'm just out of practice. Mm. Um, but to be able to s- summarize those things so well. Right. Like, and in, in, in being able to communicate in that way. Sure. Um, it's, it's something I, I, I hope to do better and inspire to do. Writing is hard. Yeah. Writing, writing is very hard. It's funny. I sort of, I sent a tweet about this shit talking it yesterday because I think... You know the the design writers on Twitter, right, who, who tweet things like, writing made me a better designer or whatever like that. I'll read their things on Medium and they're horrible writers. <laughs> maybe the bar, maybe they started at a very low so bar. So low. Yeah. And like, I think the thing is, especially in the last two years, which I basically, for the most part, really done writing, right? Yeah. Like writing is very hard <laughs> and, to, and to watch designers sort of like, basically preach about the hustle or preach about like what it was like to get signed off or preaching about like leaving their company or whatever like that. They're, they're not strong writers. Yeah. <laughs> and so to, to be in these rooms uh, and just watch this sort of talk about writing and design, um, it's just mind blowing. Cause I'll read it. I'm just like, you didn't have an editor. Like you don't, you don't even know what an editor does. Like, uh-huh. did you have an outline when you wrote that? <laughs> um, but then they'll, they'll preach about the, I guess that's the privilege of like being a white man in design is that you can just say that you're good at something. You don't actually have to be good at it. <laughs> yeah, that's so not not wrong. Just digging a grave, my friends. No, just digging a grave. It's 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 not wrong though. Like uh, that was one of my like preparing for this, and we've been friends for a few months now. Yeah. Um, and I was like, hmm. Uh, I realized. So I've lived in New York twenty years. Right. I went to school of visual arts. Mm-hmm. I've uh, in the creative community. I've you know, feel like I'm very open. Uh, and you're actually my, the first trans person I've like had a, you know, friendship with. Yeah. yeah. And, and it it was almost like, Oh, I felt like, how is that possible? Right. Um, and, and I wonder, and, uh, and then I started thinking about, you know, and I've read a lot of your writing and the writing in the Atlantic that you did was really beautiful. And that's such an experience that I can't relate to. Right. Because, and I was thinking, it's like, there's not a lot of moments where I've ever been forced to think about who I am right. or who I want to be. Sure. Interesting. Like, because I, I just went along. I'm right. just white, straight, right. just Justin. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and, and there's not a lot of things challenging right. that identity. Sure. And sure. so, and it's one of those things where, you know, I'm realizing now it's like it might have been helpful, and I'm not right. saying any of it's easy or whatever, it sure. might have been helpful to have something forcing me to think about who I am and who right. I want to be. right. And I feel like that happened recently with, you know, uh, going through, you know, a relationship sure. falling apart. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, there's a part of that was I was a little envious of that, a little envious of being able yeah. to t- decide who you are, who you want to be at right. a young age. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and so I was talking to a friend about this last night and he was like, yeah, because as a straight white male, he's like, it seems like our choices that we make, right. our tough choices sure. are two good options. Right. Right. And he was like, all right, I move to Portland or I stay in Portland or I move to New York. Right. Right. Or I, I freelance or I take a full time job. Right. And there's always been a life of safety nets. Sure. And, sure. and I can't imagine what it would be like to not have that opportunity all the time. Yeah. I feel it. I mean, for me, I just sort of kept going with life being like, if I'm awake, I'm going to do it again. Mm-hmm. This is basically like that. And I've made countless 
really risky decisions, like really risky for like a, for like I'm like a freelance design writer. I don't have health insurance. Like I make risky decisions mm-hmm. a lot of the times, right? And I, I feel very comfortable in knowing that I have to do these things. Because um, you have to make it work. Yeah, like when I was at Staples, I remember getting a full time offer from them and being like, I can't do it. I, I know I should, like, I, at this point, I, I'm very, very, very aware that this is what I should do, and I can't do it. The same thing happened at New Balance. And then I was at Amazon, it was like, great, there's, there's golden handcuffs all around me. What the fuck am I doing leaving, mm-hmm. right? Like, I had that moment, it was just like, how dumb are you? Like, you, you just, like, for me, like, I, I did all of this work and all of this sort of thing, and then to to head out of like my own just to be like it's time to go because I got to break it again and see what happens um, do you get are you afraid of getting comfortable or are you petrified of getting comfortable yeah yeah I'm petrified of getting comfortable I'm also petrified of having nothing to say like it really like the idea that I won't have anything to say just destroys me mentally mm-hmm. so I feel like I have to continuously be living and be making really challenging decisions and I feel like it's not for everyone like I've made so many compromises because of it right like i'm consistently never in relationships so if i am they're never healthy um i'm working from the second i wake up to the second i go to sleep right yeah. uh, i've had bad like just drinking and smoking and like doing xanax like, all these sort of problems throughout my life um to keep vices just to keep it going right mm-hmm. so for as good as it is for me to to be able to push forward and do it i've also just made so many fucking countless errors throughout the process yeah, I I feel like that's part of being human, right? Is, sure, sure. And it, well, and, I, and it, it it's funny. The last episode was with uh, Kwame Taylor Hayford, and mm. he was like saying how if you're not taking risks, there's just a part of you dying inside every day. Yeah, um, and really being able to see who you are. Like, right. And I think that's a thing I think about now is like, am I too comfortable? Right. Yeah. Uh, and and I think a lot of times when we challenge ourselves, we're also not giving, giving ourselves credit sure, for the sure. things that we are putting ourselves through. Totally. Because yeah. I, I don't know, I feel the need to do everything all the time. Right, sure. Um, and But like, you know, I think part of it is that balance of being, yeah. able to go, oh, at the same time, I'm doing this, this, and this. Totally. Yeah. And I'm, I'm a really big romantic. Like the, the artists that I love, I, I romanticize, right? Like um, Elliot Smith has been huge for me. Jeff Buckley has been like massively huge for me as just like a person whose work I really love, but his way of thinking I really appreciate. And uh, I remember, I mean, I've seen countless interviews of him when he was 29, 30, working on this record that would be called My Sweetheart the Drunk. And being in Memphis, like he had left the New York and he moved to Memphis and he was working on this album. And he had this little home and it was in Memphis and he had a bed, an amp, a guitar, and a phone. And that's what he had. And he just wrote a record, right? He just told yeah. the story. Uh, and I, when I was working at Amazon, I was in Seattle, I was in tech, I definitely had this, I had a home, like I, like I had a couch mm-hmm. and I still have that couch now, but uh, I, I probably won't add anything to like where my living situation in a really, really long time. If anything, I'll take things away hmm. because I, I really envy this position to be like, I have no distractions. I'm going to, to do this thing. Like this is a story that I have to tell. It's got to get out of me and I will be doing this now. Yeah. That's hard to do in New York. Yeah, that's well because there's so much other stuff to, to sure. Yeah, that. yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, so you you put parameters on things and challenges and yeah. Well, because I I saw you did a uh, what was the the black and white project that you did? Oh, the Daily Vector. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. How how long did you do that for? About a year and a half. And what was the parameters in that? Uh, fifteen to thirty minutes. Um, 
it has to be black and white. It has to be mix of vector and texture, and I gotta put it out. Yeah, and that's a was that a hard thing to keep up? It wasn't. It wasn't. I mean, I did it. Uh, I did it because uh, I started when I was living in Maine. It was right when I was starting to move to Boston, and I had a call on a f- uh, with Meryl Friedman. She's a, uh, she's a designer at um, Brooklyn Public Library, and I I very much wanted to move to New York from Portland, just directly yeah. to New York. And I, I kept trying to move here and I kept failing a lot of job interviews. And I had this call with her where I was just like, you know, I've been doing this for four years. I feel like I'm good. And she looked at my work and she was like, I got to be honest. I don't think it's that strong. And I was like, well, what's not strong? She's just like, there's just, there's no you in it. Like, I just mm-hmm. don't, like, I just don't see you in it. And I was really mad when I got off that phone. And I, <laughs> I remember I just got home from like a bike ride or something like that and I took a shower and I was just like really mad at it I was like I know what I was doing. I'm just gonna make this texture thing I'm gonna put it out every day and um, I'll get into the habit of actually producing and making things and putting it out yeah. um, and I made I don't know like 150 of them or 200 of them or something yeah. like that and it yeah. seems like there's a lot of you in that like I, there, yeah oh there's, there's, there's semblances of the writing I see now from right. you within that that's super right. vulnerable and, and and really poignant and, right. and, and so and, and some of it's just nice design and other right. uh, other ones it gets really pretty deep yeah some of them yeah there was, i remember one that i did that had uh i, I basically had like the, the like a vector of a heart um with this string on it with the cement block and there was like just all these hearts sinking under this uh in the sea and the actual execution wasn't even really strong but it came about because i my friend chris has uh this musician he said this line to me once that was um I hold on to those closest to me and I drag them to the blackest depths of the sea. Wow. And I really loved that. And I just sort of contextualized this idea of like drowning people and drowning hearts and drowning lives. So, yeah. you know, there's stuff like that is how I'd come up with them. Yeah. yeah. And, it, and it seems like it, it probably helped propel you and yeah. it helped you get jobs and all that. Yeah, it definitely like it was just like, okay, this is a person who does things like that. <laughs> and at the t- I was a really huge fan of Mark Weaver at the time and he had that daily project where his work was just fucking, I think Mark Weaver's fantastic in every way. His work is brilliant. Um, but he was doing all this like scan stuff and he, he was, he was like a refined Walter in a lot of ways. Cause Walter's work was messy and sort of all over the place. But Mark was very good at, uh, very cleanly making compositions using just real life sort of material mm-hmm. and very simple. And so I, I, between like them, I was just really, always into Scott Hansen and all these people uh, to help find like a visual design voice for where I'm at right now. Yeah, I'm going to put links to all of these in the yeah, show yeah, yeah. so people can check it out. Yeah, this is like all my references. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. great. <laughs> uh, but then now you're freelancing. Yeah. Uh, and you're doing freelance design and f- freelance writing. Yeah. Uh, how do you balance that? Uh, I feel really... So I, I balance it by not balancing it in a lot of ways. Like I don't have days that I write and days that I design because right. you, you have to be kind if you have a client, you cannot do that. Like you just like you get the call and you get the call. So there are times that like from 7am to 9am, I'm writing like freelance copy for like Uniqlo or whatever. Right? Mm-hmm. I did that. And then nine o'clock to noon, I'll work on an essay and it's like a personal essay, or whatever like that. Mm-hmm. And then from like noon to six, I could be like doing some product consulting and I flip over to sketch and I'm sort of creating a deck that tells a story. And then, um, you know, six to the end of the ninth and I'll go back to thinking or writing. So I find this, this balance of everything sort of in this middle place a lot of the times. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think even right now, it's so funny, like the projects that I'm working on, like everything is in the middle. Like the, the stuff that I'm really hyped about, really thinking about, like, 
that's not really staggered out as strong as it needs to be. Because it's just like when it all gets done, it's all going to get done in like a month period. And it's just going to be like, boom, here's this thing. Boom, here's this thing. Boom, here's this thing. Um, so I probably should get better at partitioning out these things. And then and having some structure to your day. Maybe. Yeah, yeah, little. yeah. Do you work from home a lot? I do, yeah. So I right now, as of today, uh, I'm like 14 days without drinking, two weeks without drinking. And because of that, I wake up at like 7 a.m. and uh-huh. I go for like a day, like I went for like a two and a half mile run. Nice. And I came back and I answered some emails and set up some invoices. And I came into the city to this podcast and after I leave here, I'll go and like basically um, write a second draft of another essay. So uh, my, my structure is I'm trying to position it around running right now just because I'm... That's a priority for you now. Yeah, I'm literally an addict. So once I stop drinking, I just like, cool, I'm going to run every day. Uh-huh. That's basically how it went. I, I, I could use that. Yeah. <laughs> I could use some running. Yeah. Um, and then so a lot of the writing now you're getting like... You know, you wrote that really beautiful piece in the Atlantic for the yeah. Atlantic as yeah. a rebuttal uh, to another piece, um, yeah. which people I'll, I'll link to that too. Yeah, yeah. And then the, the, the so what are the like the writing opportunities that you're getting now? It seems like they're they're very a, a, a wide variety of things. Yeah, I um, I'm very cognizant that I don't want to become a quote unquote trans writer. Yeah. In the same way that I didn't want to be a trans designer, like because I am like. Trans, it's great. I get, I get that it will be that way. Yeah. But I sort of joked about this in like my tiny letter last week was like, like if I become a food writer, am I gonna have to send out headlines that are just like this trans woman ate a plum and you'll never guess how she felt. Like, <laughs> at what point does it become like too much, right? Yeah. Well, I saw you like one of your talks was uh, you know, like w- when are trans people boring? Right. Right. Yeah. And I, I love that concept. Like, mm-hmm. I did this uh, video interview for Mike yesterday. It was all, it was sort of about detransitioning. And that topic is something that can be so sad very quickly. Mm-hmm. And I just, I love this idea of flipping it, of just like, no, we're not going to treat gender like it's like a fucking funeral. Like, we're just going to talk about it and it's going to be funny and it's going to yeah. be alive and it's going to be normal. Yeah. Um, so, with the, the writing that I'm doing right now, I'm writing everything from like, Essays about ex-boyfriends to uh, a really long piece about an, uh, a person I first dated when I came out as trans and uh, to, to writing jokes about Instagram's horrible nipple policy. For yeah, that's a great piece. Yeah. With a great chart to go with it. Yeah, exactly. So I like, <laughs> I like that, that, that bridge. But do you, do, you feel, or do you feel pressure to constantly be a spokesperson? No, I feel pressure... I put pressure on myself to push back on it yeah. because I'm not, right? Like, I'm not an activist. I'm just, I'm actually just a trans person who makes things. Um, I, when I was doing my trans self, I definitely had a ton of pressure to ideas, like an activist, quote, unquote. Mm-hmm. But I definitely don't now. Like, watching Hari Neff, um, who's this actress, watching her in interviews push back on the ways that people try to get her to talk about being trans is something that I deeply admire. And I've learned a lot from it. Like every time I read an interview from her and somebody start, starts to go into it, like she's really good at sort of being like, we're going to keep it at this level and you, you can't go anywhere else. What's the, what's the biggest thing that like uh, people who aren't trans can learn from that? Uh, just that the idea like of identity is nuanced and layered, right? Like sure, I make decisions in my life be- as a result of being trans, but I also make decisions over my life as a result of my upbringing with my mother and my father and my love of watching 500 hours of Michael Jordan interviews too. Uh-huh. Like every decision I make comes and every decision anybody makes comes from just massive amounts of layers of life. 
I'm sure being trans is a part of it, but like. But that's such a broad ca- categorization of you. Yeah, exactly. That doesn't, that doesn't acknowledge all right. the other layers. Yeah. Sometimes you eat a plum because you're hungry. That has nothing. <laughs> that's it. Like, yeah, yeah. This person ate a plum and they, they're full, and that was the end of it. And I, I sort of liked it approach that way too. Yeah, that's yeah. great. Um, how do like you know? There's also a big buzzword in the past couple of years of diversity hiring. Sure. And I feel like people talk about it a lot, but maybe yeah. there's not enough action going on. Yeah. Like, what do you see like that people could be doing better? Maybe to have. Yeah, you know, uh, I th- hiring. My thought is people at this point are very good at hiring diverse people and then they don't know what the fuck to do with them once they're there. Right. Um, look at the the resume of a person who's queer or trans. Uh, they probably haven't been in the company for a really long time, right? Like if you see somebody out in like a year, good clear indication that it wasn't a good fit. Mm. Um, so I, what I've seen externally in different places is that people really love to talk a big game. And as long as you're the the like I kind of joke about this being like the right kind of tranny. Like if you're the right kind of tranny who goes into a room and smiles and acts very thankful for being in place and very tepid and very sweet and very like I'm very appreciative I have this health insurance this job like you're good. If you're the type of person who goes in the room of saying, "Yeah, I'm trans, get the fuck over it." So here's what I think we should be doing and here's what I think where you're at like the idea of leading as a, a person in that way yeah if you do not do it in the way that is very you know culture pc well i feel like that's good fucking luck i feel like that's uh that's a problem across the board with anybody that's not sure uh, you know not straight white male <laughs> yeah and i think it's, it's going along the, with things and, and sure. making other making sure other people are uncomfortable right yeah it's part of the culture we up. build like it yeah. really is like i feel like we definitely built a culture of fluff in design mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, right? Yeah. In the way that we think design as this mechanism of 2013 Twitter where it was like, design can change the world. Like, <laughs> first off, you're not even the most important piece in the, 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 the whole project, right? Let's get real. Yeah. Like, it ships without you in the room. If there's engineering, yeah. <laughs> it ships. Yeah. If there's product, it ships. If there's design, great. But like, yeah. for them, I fell in this trap of like design can change the world. And I got into these rooms and I watched the decisions that designers were making. And I was just kind of like, really not changing the world. Um, so as much as I, I did as a designer, I had a, a really hard time walking into a space and, and making a product decision. Um, so, But don't you think that could happen in, in the inverse too? Is like design can change the world in a really fucking negative way. Of course, yeah, uh, and it you does. Know, we yeah. see that shit happening with Facebook right. and, sure. and all these the things that are happening or the addictive qualities of right. technology right. that are intentional. But so, designers yeah. aren't making those decisions. Product managers are. Hmm. A yeah. lot of the times, right. product right. managers are making the decisions. Um, the decision of like what time you get notified, the decision of how many times you... Like PM's making that decision with the researcher, Right, right. Um, so as much as design is remarkably important in that process, like a lot of the times design's role in that is whether the notification should be red or orange, not the time the notification happens or where you're at when that notification happens or, um, the layers of if you're using an app and you've let it have access to your audio and you have access to your GPS and you, you sell a thing, right? Like, Mm -hmm. The PM usually makes that decision for the yeah. most part. Um, so, well, how about as yeah. far as independent designers? You yeah. Know, uh, 
I, like you, the talk that I watched, you also said at the end, like, what the fuck are we doing? If we're just yeah, yeah, yeah. making pretty quotes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's basically what it is what's happening. And I don't see it as all of a negative thing. Right. I, I struggle with my relationship with design a lot of the times. And it actually, it's a very annoying quality if you experience me on the regular. Because <laughs> um, I really have a desire to sort of ask questions and, and really nip at the heart of what we're doing and uh and design especially like yeah i think a lot of us will to you know we're 2018 midterms are coming up and post that election there's gonna be a lot of inspirational quotes and posts and instagram hashtags and <laughs> the whole world and i think that's gonna be good and needed because designers will help sell messaging right? right like um i think like one of the the best designers that I know is this guy, Victor Ng, who was on Hillary's campaign, and he'd set culture a ton. And uh, that voice will be incredibly important, incredible, um, valuable. But there's also other things, right? Like, it's the thing that's not design. It's like when you go into a room and you have to solve a problem and you go immediately to the screen first as opposed to any other mechanism. Mm -hmm. um, so what are the other ways that designers can impact the world? Well, on the local level, you can sort of knock door to door, mm -hmm. um, you can make phone calls, you can, you can look at the data for how white women voted and then figure out where white women are uh -huh. and talk to them directly in that moment, right? Yeah. Um, and it's less of a, of a I have a 10,000 following on Twitter, Instagram, or you know, 50 or whatever it is, um, so I'm gonna make a post and it's, it's gonna really impact things, right? Right. Or what basically happened in 2016, which is I have a following of 50,000 on Instagram and I'm a mommy blogger and I lose followers when I talk about Hillary, so I won't. Yeah. Right. Turns out that was the biggest audience that needed to hear it. Yeah. So uh, there's those sort of decisions that um, I think designers would be very good at making if they give it two more seconds to think. Yeah. About and it. actually tried. Yeah. Um, we only have a little bit of time left, but I'm going to ask you a few quicker questions. I'm ready for it. Um, do you feel like you have something to prove? Yeah. Why? Because I'm still alive. And you feel pressure to, to, to prove something? Yeah. 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 Um, do you, uh, are you motivated by specific goals? Yeah. Like, what do you have one right now where you're like, all right, uh, it's all, about, well, I guess running <laughs> is yeah. one of your specific goals right now. But. Yeah. Uh, the actual motivation of my goals is to say, this is what I did. Like, just to, to not, like, that feeling of validation to throw something, something in back in someone's face never actually comes to fruition in any way. <laughs> but the feeling of myself, right, to be like, you know, like I feel like, you know, I shipped my trans health in 2016 and uh, it's now 2018 and I've done like a lot of writing and it's peace, but it's like I haven't had a massive project like that, right? So the thing that I want to prove is just be like, this is what I did. Like, you didn't think I did anything with my time. That, that's what I was doing at 2 p.m. Yeah. Something to point to. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, and I think even in the sense that like, your writing now probably allows you to ship on a quicker yes. timeline. Yeah. Because yeah. you're like, all right, I got this and I got this. And, right. that's, and that's impacting different sectors of the world. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and in different ways, too, because I think you, you have some stuff that's really poignant and some stuff that's ridiculously funny. Right. It's like, yeah. Yeah. It's a nice, probably a nice variety. Yeah. It is. Connect with people. I also got lost. I mean, I haven't really talked about this at all, but like in 2017, I was a. I'm sure if you're this far into this conversation, you've probably picked up that I'm very annoying and existential in a lot of the ways. <laughs> um, but I was like times thirty in 2017. Um, so 
now this year, I've been very good at getting out of that mindset and just doing actual work and everything. Um, and the more I sort of make things, the more I have a, a stronger edge to prove to myself that I can make things. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and, and not just talk about things. Yes. Yeah. Because yeah. we were talking earlier before we started recording how like sometimes talking about the stuff is self-serving. Yeah, it is. And I'm not going to lie. It is. I, I really like to hear my own voice. <laughs> um, but I was also quiet. I mean, I, for years, I wasn't a vocal child. Like really? it was only when I was 20 seven that I found a voice and started using it. I'm 31 now. So I have four years of hearing myself talk. Um, and, and in a lot of ways, that's a lot. But in other ways, it's, it's like... It's not at all. In the, in the, the span of your life, no, a lot took, of bottled up energy. Right. It took two years just to get comfortable talking, right? Yeah. So I'm sort of in the prime of talking at the moment. So I, yeah. I like talking about it. Yeah, I know that it's yeah, the same thing with me and, yeah. uh, and feelings. <laughs> right, right. Um, do, you, uh, do you feel like your ambition ever gets in the way of your happiness? 24-7. Yeah. Like working all the time. Yeah sacrificing relationships yeah um and 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 making decisions about what happiness is hmm. i get really high when i ship something it's better than sex like i i get off like i i'm a fucking junkie for it and it's definitely a thing that maybe i sacrifice like long-term happiness like i don't i don't drive a car and live in the suburbs and or go home and I live alone, right? Like, mm-hmm. um, so maybe I sacrifice that happiness, but what I get out of it is fucking ecstasy. Yeah, because yeah. we can never have all of the happiness. So right. you have to pick which stuff is your pro- and prioritize. Right, exactly. Yeah. yeah, so that's your priority right now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, what ex- well, I was going to ask you what is, excites you these days, but it seems like shipping stuff. Shipping a- anything yeah. else, non-design, non-career related. Jabari Parker on the Bulls, stoked <laughs> about that. Uh, <laughs> hoping that starts something. Yeah, that that team's got promise. Yeah, for the first time in a long time, I'm able to say the Chicago Bulls have promise. Uh, well, and I like during the playoffs, you're rooting for the Celtics too. So. Yeah, well, I'm, like for me, it's for, like yeah, New England. Yeah. yeah, so my dad's from Chicago, which inherently makes me a Bulls fan. But my, I mean, I grew up in Maine, which makes me a Celtics fan. Um, I don't think I'll ever be a Knicks fan, but who knows? Yeah, I, but I want the Knicks to be good just to make that would be nice. Exciting. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, what's been your proudest moment? Uh, not work-related, work-related, whatever. What up to you? Um, my proudest moment would be there are certain specific people in my life that their approval means a lot to me. Mm. Um, I, I have two professors at Farmington, um, uh, Katrazina Randall and Don Nye. Uh, they're brilliant professors. And uh, when I started to figure out my place in the world and found my voice and felt very comfortable talking with them about my voice, that, that was a very proud moment for me. Yeah. Um, and, and they saw that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's great. Yeah. Um, are you afraid you've peaked? Yes and no. I think I've peaked with design. Um, I think w- that's probably a fear. I know I haven't peaked with writing, uh, so that that part is good. Um, I think that it's less afraid of the peak. My fear is that I won't have anything else to say, which is sort of like why I go on doing this this stuff. Um, I feel like sometimes I'm afraid that I peaked um, with naivety because I, I know too much now. Hmm. But um, no, I, I feel like I got... I feel like there's new challenges out there for you, though. Yeah, I got yeah. a lot to say. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what do you want to do that you haven't done yet? Fucking crush your heart with a story. That's good. Yeah. Okay, I look forward to that. Uh, what's your biggest fear? Um, my biggest fear is that I die before saying what I want to say. 
that used to be mine. Yeah, when I was di- dying young. Not even dying young. Yeah, I'm but f- because I felt like I had p- p- potential. Yeah, yeah. As, as like a teenager. Yeah, and I was afraid of not fulfilling that. Right. Like I, and I'm okay with it not. Like, I feel like as long as I say it, it's good. It's not like a, it's not an age thing or whatever. It's yeah. this feeling of just like. When I look at the musicians, right, like Elliot Smith, mm-hmm. either or, figure eight, who was on, like, from a basement on the hill, right? And that record got released posthumously. And you can tell, like, you can tell he had something else to say and it missed. With David Foster Wallace, you could tell with Pale King that he had something to say and it just, he just couldn't get it out, right? Mm. And, and he got out with Infinite Jess and Growth Curious here and everything else, but, like, you can tell there was something more. With sketches from My Sweetheart the Drunk by Buckley, you can tell that. It wasn't Grace. Like, he just would have put it out differently. And it's good, and I'm glad I have it, but you know it's not Grace. Mm. Um, so the, the fear that I have is that um, it won't all come out in the way that I, I want it to come out. It's also a control freak thing. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I, I used to have bigger issues with that, but I'm learning to let things go. Yeah, fair. Um, uh, what's your Achilles heel as a creative person? <laughs> um, control freak? No, love. Mm. I've loved one person for a very, 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 very long time. And um, that's probably my Achilles heel. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that hit me. Um, other ways uh, you self-sabotage? Uh, drugs. Uh-huh. Uh, who makes you jealous? <laughs> uh, um, who makes me jealous? A lot of people make me jealous. Um, Bijan Steven is a fucking brilliant storyteller. He's a great writer, but he's so good at stories. And him and I were just working on something a few months ago. And watching him work, I was so envious of his process. Um, you know, I've sort of really grown to appreciate watching him work. Um, he, he's, he's very, very good. So sometimes I look at him and I'm just like, that motherfucker's really good. Oh, I got to look up his stuff now. Yeah, he's great. That's cool. Uh, do you have any regrets? Yeah, no. Yeah, uh, I have a couple. I um, uh, my biggest regret, probably, if you look at the root of it, was that I was a bad communicator. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I can relate to that. Yeah. I think one of my there have been times that it would have behooved me to shut the fuck up and just do what I was told. And for as many times as it helped me that I didn't, there's an equal amount of times that it hurt me for doing it too. So I guess I kind of regret that too. Yeah. Uh, what is success to you? Um, getting it all out. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I don't really... Uh, sure, like everybody wants their shit to be heard and voice and the whole thing, but um, getting it all out would be good enough for me. How do you know when, how do you know when, you've, when you've gotten it all out? I guess you you're not there yet, so maybe you, it's hard to answer. Yeah, I, I think I'll I think I'll just I think I'll know. I think it's this idea that when you're telling stories, like like I had to talk about being trans a really long time before I could tell a love story, right? Mm-hmm. And once I get over the next wall, there'll be another wall to get to, and I'll I'll just know when it's out. Yeah, yeah. That's I'll cool. fall asleep without thinking about it. And that's all I'll know. Yeah, it's really beautiful. Are you happy? Yeah. Uh, that's good. And then finally, how are you feeling right now? Uh, I'm feeling like... Um, 
I'm feeling okay. I feel like I've had friends in, in the last sort of few months, um, like I have not had the best summer, right? Mm-hmm. And people are like, how are you doing? And I, I keep responding with, I'm going to be okay. Like, sort of okay right now, but I'm going to be a lot better soon. Yeah. Uh, so that's, that's how I feel. I feel like I'm, I'm going to be okay. Yeah. Yeah. I think we all are. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Robin, thank you so much. This Thanks has been for great. Me. Yeah. Awesome. Woo. Did it. So good. Is it good? Robin, thanks so much for joining me and for the reminder that we're going to be okay. Yeah, it's really helpful to hear. If you enjoyed this overshare, please subscribe to ensure you get our future episodes and they're released every two weeks. Also, rate and review us to help other people discover overshare. Thanks to the team at Second Child for hosting us in their beautiful studio in Droga 5 in New York City. Thanks to our audio engineer, Martin Keating, and to Working Networking's Gabby D'Amato for editing this episode. The overshare theme song is Let It Grow by Caleb Grow. You can follow us on our brand new Overshare Instagram and Twitter channels at Overshare Talks to find more content and info about our live events that are coming up. Uh, We also have a private Facebook group at Overshare Talks as well. And if you'd like to learn more about Working Not Working and join as a creative or to hire creatives, check us out at workingnotworking.com. That's all we've got for this episode, and we'll see you next time.